Welcome home. You will hear from voices of people you might think you know, listening to these voices that have spent decades behind bars, waiting for their opportunity to come home, will confound your mind. With cameras rolling, we meet them at the intersection of their newfound freedom and a dark past. You'll hear the sound of regret from a soul of someone who has been released from prison and is now fighting to fit back into a society that once forgot they existed. Welcome to Welcome Home. My name is Alfred Smith. I was uh, born in New Orleans, Louisiana in uh, 1956. Uh, moved out to California somewhere around uh, 1958. And this is my story. I'm the oldest of three. Um, I have a sister two years younger than myself. I have a brother that's uh, four years younger. Came from a dual family, mother and father, up until the age of uh, 11. My father was a bricklayer. He left the family around the age of 11. It was uh, pretty much hard growing up in the Los Angeles area, fatherless. Yeah, it was kind of rough. Uh, you know, moms could do all that she could do to provide for us. She was uh, married when she was 18, had me basically when she was 18, so she didn't have the formal education. Dad was the provider, he was a bricklayer, and when he left, we were kind of uh, destitute, uh, moved around. She was on welfare, very playful childhood. We lived in a neighborhood, we had a lot of kids, uh, right directly behind our house is a little place we called the city lot. And actually it belonged to the city is where they uh, parked the street sweepers and whatnot. During the summertime, when it was closed down, all the street sweepers were put, you know, put away. So we would all hop the back fence and that's where we would play uh, kickball, volleyball, baseball, uh, tag, all the things that normal, normal children, you know, in the neighborhood uh, did. Go back there, shoot our BB guns, just socialize. Uh, it was a lot safer than going to the local park, you know, with the with the gangs activity and so forth. I came from New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, my mother and father separated. So for the most part, I lived with my dad, came back and lived with my mother. I'm what they consider a Creole. And because of the light brightness of my complexion and growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood, I was uh, pretty much, you know, bullied by a lot of the kids. I was picked on. Um, the good, you know, quote unquote, good hair, green eyes. So it was, it was kind of rough, you know, I didn't have that, I didn't grow up like that in, in New Orleans. But coming out to the Los Angeles area, it was a little bit different. So I, after a while, I started uh, staying by myself, being pretty introverted. My name is Betty McKay. I was born in Alexandria, Louisiana. I moved to California when I was two, particularly Sacramento, California. So I went to school in Sacramento. I was always very, I was in everything and academic thing at school and all the extracurricular activities at school. I was the leader, I was the leader. If it was happening, Betty was pushing it, okay? Uh, I also did the same thing with my sisters and brothers. I talked them into doing a lot of things. I never got in trouble because I never did it. I got them to do it, okay? <laughs> but, my background is I'm a PK, if you don't know what that means. I'm a preacher's kid raised uh, in the church. And with the rules of the church and the rules of the community, and that was a lot to do because preacher's kids are held to different standards. My mother was the epitome of a preacher's wife. My mother loved everybody. Everybody loved her. 
I would come home, clothes would be gone out of my closet because she didn't give them to somebody talking about they needed them. You know, it's like, ladies stay out my closet. You haven't worn this, I've seen you in this. But she would, she took care of her community, fed everyone, didn't matter, come on in. If you came through the door, it was like something to eat. I never had ice cream out of the store until I was grown because my mother made ice cream. My mom set the standards to this day. My sisters and I particularly hold up her standards. You know, she was always dressed. And I was like, I need to be more like my mother. She was very humble. I'm not that humble. I always wanted to be my mom, but my mom was just nice and kind and humble. And I was like, the opposite. <laughs> I was accosted by the neighborhood street gang. I declined the invitation. So my mom, uh, she got wind that someone was uh, looking to, to actually uh, to jump me, to, uh, to kill me. Uh, there was a drive-by that, uh, that was down the street from my house where the main shot caller, if you would like to live, live down the street from the house. It was a drive-by that took place. They thought that I was uh, involved in that by telling the other gang members where the shot caller lived, but I, I had nothing to do with that. She was at the store. She heard that they were going to set me up and kill me that afternoon on the way home. She uh, intercepted me at school after talking to my father on the phone. I got home. Four hours later, I'm landing at the uh, airport in New Orleans. Lived out there for about a year, year and a half with my dad until he, he got murdered. And uh, I flew back to Los Angeles, California. Stayed with my mom again. Um, after that, a lot of stuff had cooled down in the neighborhood. A lot of the guys had uh, either went to jail or was you know shot and killed themselves. But I grew up thinking that life was unfair, you know, and that you know, here it was that my dad was taken away from me, coming back home with the difficulties of being raised in Los Angeles on the streets that I became violent. I didn't run with any gangs, but I, I did things on my own. GTA, burglaries, robbing, just doing whatever the, what, I, what I wanted to do because, you know, I, I felt that, hell, nobody gave it, uh, you know, a heck about me, so why should I give a heck about anybody else? That was my life uh, from, uh, I think, the age of like 12 to uh, 18 years of age. Uh, I dropped out of uh, school. I went to uh, Crenshaw High, dropped out, running the streets, participating in uh, unlawful activities. Decided one day after a few of my friends uh, had gotten shot and went to jail, I decided that this wasn't the life for me. I went to charm school, which I thought everybody did because the people in my circle did, in my church circle did. I grew up very sheltered in a way. I didn't know what racism was until we went on vacation because we were from the South. So we would go on vacation to the South every year. And I never really knew what racism was until I saw white men talk to my father and called him a nigger and the N-word. And that's when I realized it was something different because I was waiting for him to retaliate. And he was just like, don't worry about it. Don't say nothing. You know, that I was like, don't worry about it. Say nothing. They just disrespected you, my hero. That was a broken hero moment. I had 27 years to think about a lot of things. And that was one of the things that used to pop up. It was like a lot of black men 
probably was in that same predicament. And a lot of little girls probably lost their heroes in moments like that. Probably 11th grade, me and my friends, and you have to understand that PKs hang together because everyone else is judging us. So we, we have each other's back. And so all my, my, my friends, not all of them, but a lot of them, we was curious because we would pass the places where they sell drugs and they had liquor stores and we would just park and we would just look, oh, look at that, oh, look. And it was like exciting to us and it, because it was something that we never did or, or we was like on the other side of it, uh, on the other side of the tracks, literally on the other side of the tracks. And and it was exciting and we would sit there for like hours and just laugh and look and laugh. And then, but let me just say this, dope dealers and preachers want the same wife. They want the same wife. They want that upstanding, uh, good girl type. Um, they want the, the, the one that they can take home to their mother. I moved to the Bay Area and got married at two weeks before 18. I didn't become a preacher's wife. I became a drug dealer's wife. I didn't know he was a drug dealer. Let's just say this. I was married five times. Each time I married the same man, he had a different name. So that's to say that I married five drug dealers and I divorced five drug dealers. I then began selling myself on a, on a large scale in order to prove that I could do it. Because people just thought that, you know, oh, you're just an ivory tower player. You just, just sit there and I guess eat bonbons and watch TV all day, but I really like handle most of the money. That like really drove me or motivated me to become the baddest female. In uh, 1980, I got married to my ex-wife. Um, I had an affair in 1989, which resulted in the birth of my daughter. My wife obviously found out about the affair and that led to our ultimate uh, divorce. I then got with another young lady we moved back to New Orleans, Louisiana. While in New Orleans, uh, we had a child together. She is originally from the Pomona area, so she wanted to come back to California to show the, our family the newborn. When I arrived back into Los Angeles, California, I also wanted to see my daughter. Made arrangements with the mother of my child, of my daughter, to to make you know to to come pick her up to to see her. It was an awkward situation. She would play games, saying, "No, you can't come see her. Yes, you can come see her." But cut to the chase, I was able to come see my daughter. When I got at the meeting place where she just um, said to where we were going to meet so she can so I drop my daughter off. My daughter was not with her at the car. Of course, I'm asking where my, where's Jerrica, is my daughter's name, where is Jerrica? She says, well, I decided not to bring her. Uh, you don't need to see her. I don't want her in your life. You don't need to be in her life because she said, you're living with some other bitch and uh, I don't want her to be around my daughter. 
we got into a heated conversation, heated argument about my daughter. One thing led to another with the arguing, the fighting, the fussing, bringing up a lot of uh, history, bad history that we had between the both of us. Uh, just a lot of, uh, uh, it was just a lot of unnecessary shit. She ultimately, she went to strike me. I blocked her, at her, blocked her advancements. She scratched me on the side of the face. We were, we were arguing in the car. She was yelling at me. She was screaming. She was, I kept telling her to shut, shut up, shut the fuck up. She kept on, um, everything just kind of, uh, I lost my temper. I reached over to where she was sitting in the driver's seat. I reached over and grabbed her by the throat and I was yelling for her to shut the fuck up, shut the fuck up. And, um, Ultimately, um, I strangled her to death. After that was over, I panicked, didn't know what to do. I then uh, got out of the vehicle, drug her over to the passenger side of the vehicle, drove around for a while trying to think what the hell am I going to do my first thought was take her to the uh, hospital to try you know to see what was going on then my second thought was I just need to uh, totally disassociate myself from the uh, from the situation so um, I would like I said I was scared never never had committed anything close to that found a vacant lot drove to the lot um, put her back into, I believe I, I put her in the back seat of the vehicle and uh, rolled the windows down. I put uh, cardboard boxes inside the vehicle and, and set the vehicle on fire to uh, get rid of um, my, you know, all any kind of DNA evidence that I may have left behind, plus, you know, uh, to get rid of the body and, and, and everything. I ended up going to prison for 27 years, not behind drugs because I had got out of the drug business, but because of a relationship gone bad. And ironically, the relationship was with a female. To reach that, that type of anger, to be that type of person, it really, it really screws with me to know that I was able to go beyond the limits and, and take the life of someone, especially the mother of my child, you know, somebody that I actually uh, cared for, for for a minute. Um, we had a little history. Her, her mother and my mother grew up together in New Orleans. Her brother dated my sister. I knew her on a personal level before we got intimate. So, you know, the, the trust that her, had, that her family had in me um, the betrayal, of course, that I murdered their daughter, sister, and plus she had kids. I murdered my daughter's mother, plus, the, you know, she had kids by uh, someone else, so I murdered somebody else's mother. My family, they don't like her. They didn't like, they didn't like the relationship. It wasn't even her that they didn't like. Um, I told you I came from a very religious family, and the fact that I was in, uh, same-sex relationship was like, you're going to hell. She didn't always accompany me to family stuff. And so the deal that year was we do Christmas together here 
and then you go with your family for New Year's. And it was like, okay. So I went to visit my family for New Year's in the Bay Area. I was in the house. Little things would bother me. It was like, hmm, didn't see the car because I always park in the car. She parked in, in the drive. So her car wasn't there. So I'm like, oh, well, she probably stayed over her mom's because I wasn't in town. So, you know, no big deal. So I went out in the house. I was in the house for 45 minutes before I knew they were there. And um, I made coffee. I made, I made a bath. I was doing all these things and I was just sitting in my bedroom answering the, the answering machine, just normal stuff that I do ordinarily. And I was going for my second cup of coffee when I noticed the den door was just like cracked. It was closed, but it was cracked. And when her and her friends go in there and they mess it up, that's what, that's what she does. She just closed the door and I know that it's a mess. So I went to see what the mess was, but it, the mess was her and another woman on the, asleep in the den on our day bed. And that made me crazy. And I, the idea of the grease, I poured grease on him. So yeah, I, ultimately I was, uh, I was apprehended, um, tried, convicted, uh, 1997 of uh, second degree murder, 15 to life. And that also ruined her life. Uh, I, it's a ripple effect, you know. Um, uh, my, my family was a victim behind this. My son, my daughters, the investigating officers, the fire department. Yeah, my regrets, oh man. There wasn't a time in my cell on a day-to-day -day basis that I wish I could have relived that entire event over again. Um, you know, uh, just walked out, left, you know, get out of the car and leave, you know, my, that, my pride of being that man made me stay. You know, you're not gonna talk to me that way. I'm not gonna let who the, who the fuck you think you are, you know, uh, coming at me that way. Um, and now I've learned, uh, you know, your, your pride will get you into so much shit. You know, you have to just learn to walk away. I still go through regrets. I have uh, nightmares about that night, and that happened uh, April 26, 1997. The idea of the grease came because I had cooked the night before, the night I left, and I had cleaned everything, and I was like, when this grease cool off, pour it in this can and put the pot in the dishwasher, turn it on. But it was still there. And that's how the grease came to me. So I turned it on and I went in to get dressed because remember I had my bath, right? And um, when, when I put, turned the grease on, I went back to my bedroom to put on clothes and I couldn't get my outfit right. I don't know what that was about. I couldn't get my outfit right. I had the wrong shoes on with the wrong pants. While I'm trying to get the outfit right, the grease is just smoked up the whole house. I opened the patio door, I opened the front door. Y'all still asleep? So that pissed me off. 
so there was just things that compounded and compounded. So when I threw the grease on him, in my mind, it was like, get out my house. In their mind, it was like, this shit is hot. Okay, and so I collected uh, antique lanterns and I keep them trimmed. And because in my head they wasn't moving fast enough and they wasn't getting out, I torched them again with that. First night in prison. Well, let me set the tone up for the first day. Okay, so I get to what they call R&R. This is where they strip you down of everything you have. You're standing there butt naked, female officers, everybody's around, you know, you lift your nutsack up, spread your che butt cheeks, cough the whole nine yards. They issue me my bedroll. There's about 12 of us. They all line us up and uh, marches from R&R to the dorm in which I will be uh, spending <laughs> the rest of my life. And as I walk in, there's a table about 10 feet from the door. And there is a guy laying on the table butt naked with a big fan blowing on him. And I mean, the first sight as I walk in, like you said, I'm watching this dude and he's asshole butt naked to the end. That's the first thing I see. And I go, oh my God, this is gonna be the rest of my life. I left after I threw the kerosene on them. I, I left and then I called her mom and I was like, you might need to go help Bert, right? And then I went to my friend's house and she, she was like, what's wrong? And I was like, I just burnt Bert up, you know? And it was like, what? And it was like, I just burnt her up. And she was like, well, what you wanna do? I was like, go get everything. And that's what I did. I went, I emptied the safe. I went to the other house, I emptied that safe. And um, I don't even really, now I remember this stuff, but it seemed like a movie to me then. It was not even like me doing it, but it was me doing it. But um, yeah, I won the Pretty Legs contest that night. We went to the club, I went to the club. And it was just like, and people was like, Where's her? Where's her? And I was like, oh, she ain't home. She ain't home. It wasn't until like two days later that it actually like really hit me, everything that had happened. But the way they found me was I, I transferred my phone. <laughs> that was it. That was it. That's how they found me. I transferred my phone. It was about a month after I came back and they, came and they arrested me. I walked out of court when the judge was sentenced me because he was talking about life and I was like, I ain't doing no life. I ain't, I ain't trying to hear none of that. So I got up and started walking out the court and they was like, you can't walk out. I was like, I'm already out, okay. Um, because I, I didn't want to hear that. I didn't believe that then. And I never latched onto life, that life part of that sentence. I went to CIW, California Institution for Women. I ended up doing my time there. Remembering my first night, it was horrible and I could not believe that I was there. It was like, I can't stay here. 
this it was flies. They had cows across the street and, and it stank. And I thought it was my roommate, really. First of all, I was like, she's stinking. Okay, but it wasn't her, it was the cows. Okay, but it was stinking in there. And, and there was flies on the wall. And I was looking at her like, you stinking like that? Because it was really bad and I wanted to approach her, but I'm glad I didn't. It was horrible. They had a little bitty bed. It had a mattress like this. I, I am not putting anything on it. The mattress was literally less than two inches. And I was like, how am I sleep on this? I did not sleep that night. I don't think I slept for a couple of nights. And I think when I did go to sleep, I just went to sleep out of pure exhaustion because I could not believe that I was in the prison. Like, the door is like, and when they opened, it like kept scared me every day. It scared me to death because they like, like, pop, 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 pop. and it's on my gunfire to me. And it took me like a long time to get used to those doors opening like that. And that was like the worst part of the whole, whole day for me. And it happened twice, once at four o'clock when they counted and once at night when they locked you in. And it was the most horrible sound that I ever heard. And man, I grew used to it. They finally assigned me to a cell. It was a frightening experience. You hear the stories about uh, prison life and about rape and about the uh, gang violence. So the next thing I tried to do was to become comfortable. And at that time in 1990, we could have our own clothes, you could have TVs, you could have whatever. And I had like 37 pair of shoes at one time. And, and I changed TVs and because I just did things, but what happened was, I just realized I was never gonna be comfortable here. So uh, not knowing what to expect, that first night uh, was a very sleepless night. I did hear a lot of um, screaming throughout the night uh, in different, from the diff coming from different cells um, to the magnitude of why they were screaming. I can only imagine what was going on. But the realization for me hit about one, two o'clock in the morning, saying, oh my God, this is, this is where I'm gonna, this is the rest of my life. And I was sentenced to 15 to life for, for murder and God, you know. So it, it, it was a rough night. Well, naturally the wishes that I had that are not gonna come true is to have a relationship with my daughter and to be able to see my grand my grandson or kids or whatever she has. I have not obviously spoken uh, to my daughter in 23 years. Uh, she was seven when this happened. I am 66 years of age. So uh, again, um, you know, I've got more time behind me than I have in front. So um, a lot of the, the wishes or my aspirations uh, have all disappeared. Uh, my, my, my goal uh, before going into the penitentiary, I was working for Amtrak and um, just before my crime, I was accepted into engineering school, well, to uh, a locomotive, to, to operate the locomotive. 
And uh, that was my passion. I wanted to retire, uh, as my younger son would say, uh, driving the choo-choo train. Well, you know, that that's not gonna happen, you know. Uh, and uh, I've learned to accept those things, you know, as, as time goes on. Yes, every day in the penitentiary, um, thinking that my appeal was gonna go through, I was soon gonna get out. I had a life in front of me. I was, you know, still thinking about being able to take opportunity with my youth and, and do a lot of traveling. You know, I want to buy, I want to purchase a home. I wanted to, you know, the things that normal, normal men or women do, you know, think about, you know, what they want for their life. I'm grateful at this particular moment that, you know, when I, when I did get out that I had my family to support me. Um, my brother, my sister, my sons, my nephews, nieces, uh, you know, they all welcomed me open arms. I did not know how I was going to be perceived, you know, because of the crime that I committed, you know, uh, I didn't know how I was going to be embraced within my, my, my own family, let alone the community. I was gone for 23 years, so when I left, cell phones was just a flip thing and there was no, no such thing uh, as uh, all this online stuff and, you know, uh, Google and all these other things. So it was hard to navigate just going to the store and, and, and using an ATM card or, you know, trying to make a phone call. I just want to be normal. I just want to be normal. I just want to live like everybody else. I, I, I don't want to be treated differently. I just want to be treated as this newest version of myself that's coming out here. And I just want to be normal. But what the hell was normal? And who set the description for normal? Normal to me was just like being like everybody else. That's all I wanted was just to be like everybody else. But some things happened that let me know that I wasn't normal like other people. And the first thing that happened was my friend was like, I went to, went to Walmart, get some makeup. For 27 years, I wrote what I wanted. I checked just check the box beside what I wanted and put how many of them I wanted it for 27 years. That's how I got my, my food and everything. I slid the paper, I checked it, slid the paper across, got the stuff across the counter, put it in the bag, took it to my unit. But when I went in Walmart, it was rolls and rolls and rolls and some more rolls of makeup. And I had an anxiety attack, and I just needed to get out of there. The date of my release, needless to say, I didn't get any sleep that night in the anticipation of finally going home. Uh, to back up just a little bit, uh, I've been to the board five times, uh, and each time it was a, was a denial. Um, the first time I went to the board, I had a five-year denial. Um, I had to go back in five years. The next time was a four-year denial. I uh, filed uh, paperwork um, to get back in earlier. So I did off that four years, I went back in two. I got a three-year denial. 
That brought me back in 18 months later. I got another three. So on the fifth one, I, you know, I'm thinking it's a status quo. I'm never getting out of prison, but I've got to jump through the hoops, I, you know, do what I need to do. So yeah, I'm going to the board. And finally, they said, Mr. Smith, um, we have no reason to keep you any longer. And man, that I, I, had, I had to ask them twice, did I hear you correctly? And they looked at me and smiled and basically long story short is yes, we find you suitable uh, for parole. The date of my release finally came. And I mean, it was like, I couldn't sleep that night. I've already, give, I've given away all my property to all the other, you know, my friends in there, my TV, my radio. I, I'm not taking any of this shit home with me. I don't want anything with uh, my, uh, prison number tattooed on it, you know, out on the streets. I'm like, no, you can have all of this stuff. So about 6 a.m. for the early child release, they cracked my door. I'm standing there with my box with just my personal stuff in it, all my transcripts from the, from the trial, all my, my photos, everything that's near and dear to me. It was one clear box full of stuff. I walk out, I go back to uh, R&R, which is receiving and release, uh, anticipating, can't wait to get out of this place. It was like, oh my God, um, they send you through all of this process to make sure you are who you are, that they're letting out the right person. You have to answer a whole bunch of questions. Anyway, that's another nonsense. So finally, um, I strip out get off my prison guard, put on my dress outs, which basically was a pair of sweats. And I'm sitting patiently waiting for the, for the bus to, uh, to load us on the bus so that uh, I can get out of there. And uh, man, I couldn't describe the feeling. Um, they put us in the van, drive us out through the, uh, the main gates and to look at the prison from the other side of the gate without cuffs, or shackles was an undescribable feeling. Um, it was like being reborn again. Um, my sponsor, unfortunately, my family was there, but they couldn't come into the prison to 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 uh, meet me upon my release. The only person that can greet me was my sponsor, the guy that uh, that was accepting me into the Veterans Transitional Center. I was under his ward, so I was released to him. But he assured me that my family was close by, that they were at a place called Blackbeard Diner and they were waiting for me to be released. And uh, we drove, it must've been about 15 minutes. Uh, that was in itself was, I mean, to, in, to be in a vehicle after 23 years um, was just, you know, that <laughs> I don't even know how to describe that. And finally, when he pulled into the parking lot at Blackbeard Diner and I saw my sister, my son, my nephew, my niece, um, I broke down, uh, I broke down and, and, and cried. Um, the emotions of being able to hug and kiss and, 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 and touch another human being, you know, was after 23 years of no contact, you know, with, with, with anyone uh, to be able to put your arms around someone and to feel the love, the warmth, the, you know, uh, the body, to smell 
shampoo in my sister's hair, just, you know, just the, the feeling of being out. It was, it was exhilarating. I, I still can't describe it. It was over the top. It was a very emotional day because I was actually told I was paroling two years before. So what happened was I was found suitable. It went to the governor's board and all that, and they agreed to it. They said that I was going to parole December 4th, 2015. On December 3rd, at 2.20, they came and told me I wasn't paroling because it had been a miscalculation with my time. Before they did, they calculated the time manually, but they got this new system called Psalms, and Psalms said that I didn't get some credits that they had given me because it was an enhancement. And I had so much time that they had like deducted it all, but whatever, manually and the, and the computer said two different dates. So I didn't go home the next day and I quit everything. I quit myself, I quit God, I quit everything. Because after that was 25 years and after 25 years and going through all that and having a date gave everything I owned away. And at 2.20 the day before, you come and tell me I'm not going? One of the ministers that come in sent for me. And it was like, Pastor Ashley wants you over there right now. And I was like, I ain't going nowhere. Tell him I said no. And I heard myself say that. And in my head, I love God, I love God. I think that everything that I have in every place that I am is because of Him. That's what I believe to be true. So what popped in my mind is, either you gonna trust me or you're not. And I got up and I put on clothes and I went to the church and it was good that I did. It turned, it turned things around for me. And so then I started fighting for myself. I started fighting for myself. It was like, what can I do? I'm not sitting here no two more years. And I had so many credits. What happened was because I had came off of that lifer status, it opened me up for milestones. And I had so many that I, I could only get six months. You can only get six months of milestones per year at that time. So I got the max, and instead of doing two years, I did a year and a half. And here I am. The first meal I had, I think it was KFC. <laughs> I think it was KFC. I had been like wanting some, some KFC forever, forever. So KFC was my first meal, I think. I don't, I don't even remember, but I remember eating KFC. Miss Jackie picked me up. I didn't want an awful lot of people there. I had, well, a week later, it was a lot of people there. That weekend, like, I think I had like 
25, 30 people rolling up in uh, Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> we took over the Cheesecake Factory to celebrate. Now, I do remember that. And um, so I had the opportunity to, uh, to have my first meal at uh, Blackbeard Diner, my first uh, free meal, as we say, you know, uh, non-prison food in 23 years. Oh, my first meal was uh, two eggs over easy, hash browns, uh, pancake, orange juice with the pulp. I wanted real orange juice, milk, and coffee. Being able to sit down uh, and not be rushed to eat, not having somebody standing over you looking around and there's a guard with a shotgun over there. There's another guard walking up and down the tables, you know, telling you it's time to go not looking around you to see, you know, who's behind you. Cause in prison you are, your head's always on the swivel. You can't even go to the chow hall and eat without, you know, that, uh, that fear that something's gonna happen, which usually does when it does happen, it happens in the chow hall. Cause that's where everybody is. So uh, you guy can get, be getting stabbed right behind you in the next table. The guy sitting at the table with you could be getting into a fight. So yeah, this, to just to be relaxed, to sit at a table like a human being and eat, uh, that, that, that for me stood out the most and to be with my family. My name is Craig Smith and uh, Alfred Smith is my brother, but he's not just my brother, he's also my best friend. As kids growing up, he was my older brother, so, you know, up until I was a teenager, he really didn't want much to do with me because I was this tag-along little brother. Then when he left home and joined the Navy, a year and a half later, so did I. We wound up being together on the same duty station. We went overseas together, which made us even closer. And we've always been close to each other. That's what makes him my best friend because I can confide in him and I can rely on him for just about anything. If I really need somebody to talk to, he's my go-to guy. We had guys night every other weekend. We would go play videos, we'd go to the movies, we'd go to dinner, we'd hang out and just talk, just him and I. And this was after we were in the service. So when my brother got incarcerated, I was devastated. The one question people always ask me is like, well, do you think he did it? And I always come back with the same response. I don't care whether he did it or not. It's not gonna change the fact that he's my brother and I'll love him until the day that I die. I tried to visit as much as I could. Every time I would go see him, I would cry all the way home because it broke my heart because I lost my best friend. I can't judge him. I didn't live his life. So what can I say about that? Nothing, he's my brother. I love him. He's my best friend. I love him. I'll continue to love him, plain and simple. When I saw him for the first time after he was released, it was an overwhelming feeling. Now, um, I'm a lot wiser, a lot older. Um, you know, I, I, I think before I react, let me put it this way, you know, um, I'm, I like to think I'm a little bit more mellower, a little bit more understanding. I, 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 I'm a human and I understand I have feelings, emotions. I understand other people have feelings and emotion. I try to consider uh, other people just like I like to be considered. Mm -hmm.